so let me pray, pray for us one more time. Father, thank you so much for just gathering us together, and we are here to receive from your word, and we pray, Lord, that uh, we would lean in to you to listen to what you have for us, and speak to us, Lord, and fill us with your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I met Harold over 20 years ago now, uh, but what at seminary, and we shared a love of uh, um, uh, dosa bibimbap and uh, and of uh, Korean barbecue and many Korean foods, and then also uh, yeah Tim Keller and this you know just um, reaching people and. Uh, we also, uh, what really solidified the friendship, though, was a trip that we took to um, Egypt together. We went, we went with our seminary to Israel for two weeks, and Jordan, and then we added, just the two of us added a trip to Egypt to go up and down the Nile for a week. Uh, so that was a great adventure. We had many mishaps. Uh, one of them uh, was at the Great Pyramids of Giza. Uh, we were on, on um, camelback, and not all camels want to be ridden. Um, Harold's camel was very ornery and eventually kicked him off. And then, and if you can picture this, he goes flying off and then uh, his leg gets caught in the, in the reins and the camel takes off for the desert. And uh, he thought at that point that I should have tried to save him. But I thought this is a great moment in Egyptian history. You know, and I need to document this with... On film, right? So I'm taking all these pictures. I'm 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 capturing it for humanity, really for other you know other people, really uh, capturing this moment. Uh, and eventually, he you know uh, I went after him and helped him. But uh, basically, those the, the pictures I can't find anymore. The scars are gone for for Harold. But he will not let me live this down. He will not let me forget this. Uh, and the mental picture, though, is worth it, I think. Isn't it worth it? I mean, just that I could share that with you now, you know? So uh, it's wor so worth it. But he, Harold is a gem. He's one in a billion. That means there's seven and a half other Harolds in the world. Uh, he's uh, one in a billion. And just uh, I have laughed so much with Harold over the years. Uh, but he, just as many times, I've been deeply encouraged by his deep, deep faithfulness and his deep faith and, and his... Uh, his encouragement. So uh, you guys are lucky to have him. I, I am so impressed by what God's doing in Christ Central, and you have an amazing staff team and just an amazing population. It's just wonderful. So I'm grateful for uh, to be with you this weekend. It's been a real, real joy. I've really had a lot of fun. Christ Central is in the middle of a series uh, called Frequently Asked Questions. The question for tonight is, what can I do with my shame? What can I do with my shame is what we're addressing. Many have observed that American culture is shifting from a culture of guilt to a culture of shame. And uh, those are very different things, actually. Guilt says, I did something wrong, and I need to make it right. Shame says, I am something wrong. And usually, the next line is, I don't know what to do about it, because it's just who I am. Uh, I am my shame. Uh, we all carry some form of shame and some level of shame around inside of us, and it really holds us back. We're convinced that if people really knew us, wow, okay, if people really knew us, they wouldn't want to know us. They wouldn't want to be our friend. If they really knew uh, us deep down to the core and they saw what, what we know we've done to others or what we've done with others or what was done to us, our shame comes from those places of what we was the sin that 
was done to us and the sins that we've committed with others. So we tend to not know what to do and stuff the pain. And the sister of shame is pain. And that's not uncommon today. You know, the question for the boomer generation, mostly our grandparents now, uh, the question for the boomers was, where is truth? The question for uh, the Gen Xers, that's me, was where is meaning? And we had all these, the grunge music explosion and like we just were like, everything's meaningless. And we're looking for meaning. Uh, what's, real, what's really real? And the question for the millennials is, what do I do with my pain? Where can I find healing? Because, uh, and someone pointed out that that's a cascading effect, generational sin there, where one generation throws out the truth, the next generation doesn't have any meaning. And the generation after that doesn't know what to do with all of this pain that they're carrying around themselves because of the lack of meaning, because, of, because they're doing things without categories that, that used to define what was meaningful and right, what was not, you know? So... Uh, I live in New York City. I live in Brooklyn uh, with my wife and three little boys. That's why the gray hairs are all here. Uh, three little boys. And, you know, I'm around a lot of driven and accomplished people, you know. And I think SoCal is very close to that. And, you know, the coasts are close to each other culturally, generally speaking. And, you know, I'm around a lot of driven and accomplished people. And often what drives people is not healthy. It's often lies that they believe deep down in their core when they were younger. Things like, I'm not wanted, and I'm a failure, and I'm ugly, uh, I'm uh, worth abandoning. And what we, what we tend to do is we, we absorb those kind of shameful uh, lies into our core, and then we unno unknowingly spend the rest of our lives trying to live the opposite of that, and we say, I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm not a failure. I'm never going to fail. No one's going to see me fail. Or I'm going to be indispensable to my school or to my office so that no one would ever abandon me or leave me off the team. I'm, I'm going to prove how beautiful I am. So it's this striving, this longing, this, this desire to, to be something we deep down believe we're not that usually drives us to uh, to try to accomplish things. And it, and it can be very productive for a while, right? We can get into the schools we wanted to get into and get the promotions we wanted to get and things like that. But you know what? It's a pretty miserable existence, honestly. And it's not the freedom that Jesus has for us. It's not what Jesus wants for us because he's committed to our freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And he really wants us to have a freedom from those lies, from that core deep shame. Maybe you're carrying around a lot of pain that no one knows about. You, only you really know the depth of it. Maybe there's things you've never told other people out loud. Maybe you carry deep shame of what was done to you. If that's you, the Bible says you're not alone. And today we want to look at one woman who knew shame to the depths of its despair and the depths of its pain. We want to look at Jesus and the sick woman or the bleeding woman of Mark 5. There's also parable, parallels in Matthew and Luke. Uh, in Mark 5, chapter 5, verse 21 to 34. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. 
Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed against him and around him. And a, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12, for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You, you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing who, what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is the end of the bleeding woman's story, but in the next couple of paragraphs, we have the rest of the Jairus' daughter's story, where uh, Jairus is told not to bother Jesus anymore because his daughter has now, in fact, perhaps because of this delay, died. To which Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, just believe. He then goes to Jairus' daughter's corpse and says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she gets up, she's raised from the dead. Mark also mentions that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old when this happened. So let's consider the bleeding woman for a moment. In, in Jewish law at that time, when a woman was going through her normal menstrual cycle, she was considered unclean and could not stay in the community, needed to actually remove herself from the community for the duration of the cycle and could only come back after ritual cleansing. Can you imagine how disruptive this was for a woman's life and for a community, for a woman's education? Things like this are still going on in the world. Now think of this woman. One day her bleeding starts like normal, but doesn't stop and keeps happening and keeps going and going and going and going. And it goes on for 12 more years. Some scholars believe that she had a uterine fibroid that was bleeding. But of course, back then, people wouldn't know what that was. They wouldn't know what was going on. And they would just assume that something was deeply, deeply wrong with this woman. That, some, that she is wrong in some way. And that she needs to be kept apart from community. It's likely that her family and friends all abandoned her, right? I mean, why would you continue to associate with her? How could you continue to associate with her when she's that reprehensible, that disgusting? And if she ever touched anyone else, they would be made unclean. So, like the lepers of the day, she probably had to go through in public, whenever she was out in public, either day or night, she would have to say, unclean, unclean coming through, unclean. And people would part the ways. And, and everyone, of course, knew her. Everyone knew her. Everyone recognized her. 
She also became desperately poor, spending all of her money on doctors, like every cent she had. She, can you imagine the hope where she saves up enough money for that really expensive doctor over there who, who's got a good reputation, who promises her healing, spends all of her money, and then nothing changes. She's still experiencing this pain. She's still struggling like this. And then she finds another doctor, saves up for the next doctor, but she... Be, the whole time becoming desperately poor, probably another indication that she's been abandoned by her, her family. And of course, she is desperately, desperately lonely. But she takes a risk with Jesus. She's heard about this man, and she covers herself, and she sneaks in the crowd, of course, touching all these people, you know, but she's desperate. And she goes, and she's, she's hiding, and she silently thinks, if I just touch the edge of his garment, if I can just, I might be healed, and I'll be healed. And she reaches out and touches him. And then something she never expected happened. In an instant, she was completely healed. I mean, completely freed from her suffering. That's what the text says, completely freed from her suffering in an, in an instant. And she said, could this be true? Could this be real? For the first time in 12 years. Oh my goodness, thank you, God. But then something terrifying happens. Jesus turns around and he says, who touched me? And she's so afraid. She's so like, oh my goodness. No, no, he knows. He knows, of course. Why did I think I could hide? And, you know, all these other people I could fool, but I couldn't fool him. He knows he's the holiest of men. If I touch him, he'll be made unclean and he'll know and he'll turn around and he'll expose my shame to everyone and, and, and he'll take back the suffering. He'll take back the healing. He'll, I'll return to my suffering. I, I had it for a sweet second, but now it's gone. And he's talking to his disciples about something and she's debating this in her mind and he says it again, who, who touched me, I know power went out from me, who touched me. And she decides, okay, I'll, I'll come forward and I'll confess and I'll, I'll, I'll tell my whole story and, and I'll just, they all know it anyway, I'll just tell my whole story to Jesus and it'll be over and I'll return back to the way things were. But she... Uh, she says the whole story and, and confesses everything. And, and Jesus, what does he do? He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Isn't that wonderful? Now, why did Jesus do that? Why would he put her through that? Don't you think that many times people touched the edge of his clothing and got healed? He didn't stop for them. You know, what, what was going on? Why was he doing this? Tim Keller's helped me understand this. Uh, he's preached on this, and I've appreciated his teaching on this. He said, you know what? It wasn't just that he wanted to heal her physically. That's not enough. He wanted to restore her socially at the same time, too. And only by, only by calling her out and letting, making it public could he restore her socially? By doing that, everyone knew then. Can you imagine if he just touched her, if, if uh, she just touched her, him, sorry, and she was healed, and then a day later she tells everyone, I'm healed, I'm healed. They probably wouldn't believe her after 12 years, right? And they're not gonna 
trying to find out. I mean, they're, they're not going to believe her. He knows that in this case, he needs to really make sure that she's restored socially to society, restored completely. Isn't that amazing that Jesus does this, that he's got this compassion? So it's, he makes it not just a miraculous healing, but an act of social justice. He's restoring her in a way that she needs to be restored in front of the eyes of other people. He says it's not okay for her to continue uh, being, uh, being associated with this and being outcast at, even though she is healed and you know, she can enjoy her physical healing. It's not enough for Jesus. It's not enough for Jesus. And isn't it interesting that it's all she wanted from Jesus, but it's not all he wanted to give her. Jesus is not done yet. He's healed her physically and socially, but now he wants to restore her emotionally and spiritually. What is the first word out of Jesus' mouth after she's confessed? What is, the what is the most powerful word that she could ever have heard? Daughter. Daughter. He, she hasn't heard that word for 12 years. For 12 long years, she has not heard the word daughter. She's been outcast by her family. It's likely no one wanted to associate with her. But Jesus owns her with that. And Jesus lifts her up. And Jesus restores her. And Jesus says, even if no one else wants you, I want you. Even if no one else will own you, I will own you as my own. You're mine. You're my daughter. How dare any of you look down on this woman? She's my daughter. <laughs> he carried so much weight, right? He was the Messiah. Everyone was acknowledging that. They were crowding, pressing around. They would listen to anything he said. So he used that power, that privilege, that opportunity, and plowed it into the kingdom and brought the kingdom to this woman and said, I'm going to use what I have to lift her up. That's what we need to do with our power and privilege, with whatever advantages we have, economically, racially, socially, whatever, educationally, whatever we've got, we are called to plow it into the kingdom, not use it for ourselves, not consider it something to be grasped and used for our own advantage, but to plow it into the kingdom and, and to use it for, to lift other people up, to help other people who can't get there on their own. This woman was hopeless, had no, no chance of getting anywhere on their own. And Jesus knew that, and he used everything he had to lift her up to, to say, this is my daughter. So he said that for everybody else, and of course he said it for her. I mean, music to her ears. Music to her ears. She couldn't believe that he was doing this. And it meant the world to her. So Jesus restores her physically, socially, emotionally, all in an instant with one powerful word. And it shows his heart, not just for her, but for all the brokenhearted, all the poor, and his desire to set things right as they should be, to bring the kingdom of God. Sin is whenever things are not as they're supposed to be. We looked at the catechism today. Sin is when things are not the way they're supposed to be. The kingdom is when things are restored to the way they are. Disintegration is sin. Sin leads to disintegration. Satan always wants to separate us from each other and from God and from our true selves and from our futures. Sin, Satan separates. 
Jesus reunites. Jesus brings it back together. Jesus integrates. She re, he reintegrated her into society. He reintegrated her broken parts inside of her physically. He reintegrated everything for her. And that's what we're called to do as his representatives. We're called to integrate. We're called to bring the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come. When we pray that, he wants us to be the answer to that prayer. He wants us to bring the kingdom. And you know what? The kingdom of God, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Christ with your, with your life, the kingdom of God is inside of you. So you know what? Wherever you go, the kingdom goes. Wherever you go, the kingdom is near. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark is, the time has come. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The time has come. So everywhere you go, you can say the time has come. For this office that I work in, the time has come. For this department where I major in this, in this discipline, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. It's nearer now than ever before because I'm here. And that's no boast about yourself. It's basically God in you that wants to reach everyone around you. He wants to use you and to restore all things, to bring all these things. For everyone I know, every student I know, their faith is over here, their studies are over here. God wants to bring them back together. For everyone I know who's working a job, their, their faith is over here on Sundays and weekends and their Monday to Friday is over here. Their work is over here. Their work friends are over here. Jesus wants to bring it together. He wants us to be one person every day of the week, everywhere we go, bringing the kingdom, seeking ways to, to restore, seeking ways to bring the kingdom. One thing I want to point out is that he gives priority to this, ble this bleeding woman. Can you believe that he does this? I mean, Jairus is the synagogue ruler, which is you know, in a theocratic society, the top of the heap. I mean, it's the town mayor, you know, and, and Jairus has asked for his help. So everyone's like, okay, Jesus is going to help Jairus. We got a, a mission. You know, the disciples are like, we got top urgency here. And Jesus says, stop. Who touched my clothes? <laughs> the, the, the disciples were incredulous. The woman was terrified. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew that someone needed his help. There's going to be a lot of surprises on the last day. If you're like me, you're very busy. And you can tend to wear, wear busyness like a badge. Look how important I am. Look how significant I am. I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm so busy. Busy for God. I'm busy for God. I, I'm doing things for God. You know what? There's going to be a lot of surprises on the final day. Because we're going to, we're going to, say, we're going to point to the ways that we were busy. And... Jesus, I think, is going to point to the, the times we took, we were interruptible. The times that we were taking the time for the lonely, the outcast, the voiceless. Those are the moments when he is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We might point to all this other stuff, and we might say, as one pastor said, you know, uh, uh, I have written down in my book of life, uh, you know, uh, December 7th, December 7th. And, uh, and you're like, oh yeah, well that's, that's the day that they, you know, Christ Central honored me for my years of service. You know? It's like, actually, that's not what I have written here. You know, I, I actually see that at, at that ceremony in the back was a, a little girl that was just clearly depressed, clearly, you know, kind of shaken. And, 
before the service started, you walked up over to her and you just asked her how, you, how she's doing and what you could do to help her. And you just loved her. That's what's in my book. Are you interruptible? Are you, are, are you interruptible? Or are you so driven to serve and driven to be, you know, accomplishing your things for God that you're not open to what God's throwing in your path and to the people that God has for you? Who is the outcast in your life that needs your attention? Think about that person. Who is that person? Make a mental note of that person or that kind of person and talk to them today. Reach out to them today. Give them some of your time. They're worth it. Jesus says this bleeding woman and her problems matter and he makes the time. He also never wastes our pain. 2,000 years later, we're talking about these 12 years of pain for this woman's life. 12 years versus 2,000 years. He has a plan for our pain, and typically we don't want any pain, right? I mean, obviously, we are very, especially us as Americans, we're pain averse. We'll take umpteen number of pills to get rid of the pain, you know? But in God's economy, he has used pain to help us get in touch with the deeper things of life and the most important things in life and to let go of the less important things. He wouldn't remove Paul's thorn in his side uh, because he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Maybe he eventually did. Have, have you heard the word daughter or son? that calls you daughter or son in spite of your shame, in spite of your utter moral failure. Have you heard that? If not, maybe it's because you have not brought him anything to heal. My friend Janice had an amazing dream once that she shared with me, actually another friend from seminary. She dreamed that she lived on a farm and on this farm was a main house and a barn and uh, she was a little girl, and her, her dad was sitting in the kitchen, and, you know, and she, his, her dad had always said, you know, you can play anywhere on the farm, run around anywhere, play with everything, but just don't go into the barn and play with those rusty tools that are on one side of it. Don't just play in the rest of the barn. Just don't touch those tools. They're rusty, and you know, they're sharp. So one day, of course, the day comes that she does. She, she can't resist playing with them. So she, she picks up the, the scythe, the, the Grim Reaper tool, and she starts swinging it around. And what do you think happens? But the, the big blade comes off and comes down on her hand and slices her hand open. And she starts bleeding like crazy. And immediately, all can, she, she can think about is her father, her father's face saying, don't touch those tools. She covers her, covers her wound. She runs through the kitchen past her dad into uh, her, her room and into her closet and she locks the door of her closet and she's screaming and she's crying and she's bleeding. And the last thing she wants to do is face her father. That's the last thing she wants to do. She just, she can't believe it. She's so ashamed that she's done this. Her father, meanwhile, is on the, uh, at the, the closet door, banging the closet door. Please, let me in. Let me in. Let me help. Let me help. Let me help you. And she just is like crying and so ashamed. And no, 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 no. And eventually she does open the door. And she expects condemnation. And she expects, oh my gosh, you touched those tools. And, you know, a reminder of what, what law she broke but all she got was grace. He scooped her up, 
and carried her into the, the kitchen and washed her, her hand under the, under the sink and cleaned up her wounds and bandaged it, put medicine on it, covered it up and just held her, just loved her. What are the shameful things that we have that we're not bringing into the light? Because only when we bring them into the light will we realize that God has forgiveness for us. Only when we bring it into the light in our community do we realize our community has grace for us. Otherwise, we suffer because we always suffer in isolation. We only heal in community. Do you understand that? Any sin or shame that we keep covered up, stuffed, safely stored away, trying to deny it's there, anything like that is making us sick. Because we're only as sick as our secrets. And, and, and those secrets make us sick and they can't, there's no hope for healing. No hope that, the, that anything will change. And we start walking around with a limp. We start walking around in deficit. We start walking around looking for love but not willing to show who we really are. We put on masks. Masks so that others will love us. We put on religious masks, especially at church. We put on religious masks so that we play this game where we look like we have it all together and other people will love us then, right? But have you ever done that? Do you know what happens? I know what happens. I did it for most of my life, probably 25 years. I wore a mask at church and in religious circles and never showed them my deep pain, my deep shame. And you know what happens? People fall in love with the mask and not you. And you know that they're not loving you, they're loving the mask, so I better keep that mask up. God says, put down the mask. He's calling you out like he called out the bleeding woman. He's calling you out and he's saying, would you confess? Will you tell me your story? Will you come out? Tell me your story. What, what is your story? And when you do that, I'll, call, I'll own you. <laughs> I'll call you daughter. I'll call you son. And you'll be mine and you'll be freed of your suffering. Not just whatever that memory was, but freed of all your suffering. What do you need to be healed of? What shame have you been carrying for too long and stuffing and trying to keep everybody else away from? You got to live in the light. You got to come out. You got to bring it out. You got to come clean in order to be made clean. Like that woman. You have to come clean. There's no hope for getting free of the religious mask game until you take off the mask. And with at least a few people, starting with at least a few people, being honest about who you are and, and trying to make them people that are people of maturity, grace, and truth in the gospel, who can minister the gospel to you, you know? Who can, who can take you forward. I struggled with pornography and masturbation for over 20 years. Uh, and it was a deep secret and it was a devastating secret I, and I was like and I was a leader in Christian circles and same personality I have now and everything but and no one no one could tell but I knew and I knew I was lonely it was very lonely inside you know and there's nothing more isolating than pornography <laughs> you know and it makes you more and more lonely I I used it mostly when I felt overwhelmed by my life. I perceived it as something that could give me some relief and set me free from the perceptions of others that I thought were so negative about me. And it had such a pull because 
I thought I could control it, but of course, like all sin, it controlled me. Like all sin does, it promises you freedom, but it gives you a prison. Finally, I dragged it into the light. Finally, I brought it to community, to, to some godly friends, and they didn't reject me, and they didn't think I was the worst scum of the earth, that I, had, I, was, I was cursing myself out in the mirror. You have such rage against myself. That doesn't change you. None of that works. Jesus shows us what works. Grace works. But grace requires openness. Grace requires living in the light. That's the only way. That's the only way to freedom. So I got covenant eyes on my computer now. It's a program that sends an email of every, every website I visit to, uh, to my mentors, right? And uh, yeah, and it flags the ones that are, you know, if, if, if anything's questionable. And you know what? That's freedom for me, actually. Because every time I open the computer now, there's Dave and there's Kathy, my uh, pair of couple that's a men mentors of mine. And they're looking at the same thing I'm looking at. I'm, I live in community every time I open my computer alone. I'm still in community. It cost me $7 a month and I'd pay $700 a month. Don't tell the company. Um, there's another one called Triple X Church that's free, Triple X Church. It's the, it's the same program-ish, but it's free. But I can't tell you the freedom I feel. You know, Isaiah says, you will forget the shame of your youth. I'm starting to forget it. I'm not even tempted in the same way anymore, at, at all in the same way. I'm not tempted. Now, I know that I have to be careful, and I set up all these things, including covenant eyes, you know, to, be, to protect myself. But you know what? I am forgetting the shame of my youth. I'm not living in that every, every day anymore. Praise God. Praise God. When he calls this woman forward, he calls her out of her shame and into the light. When he calls this woman forward, he calls her into a deeper redemption, and it points to what he's about to do in a couple years, which is the, the path to redemption, which is the cross. How did Jesus die on the cross? It was the most shameful thing in the world. He was naked, nailed open. You can't get more open than that. He was nailed open on the cross and completely naked. He took on our shame. He bore our shame, as Isaiah says again, I, I believe. He bore our shame for us on the cross. And why did he do that? Why did he leave the high, highest place in the world, the highest rung of society, of, of heaven and earth, and come to the lowest bottom of the bucket to reach you and me, desperate sinners? Why did he do it this way? He did it this way so that he could demonstrate the greatest failure. So he could own the greatest failure so that for any of us who feel like deep down, I'm just a failure and I'm never going to amount to anything. So we never have to live out of that lie anymore. He was marred beyond recognition so that if you believe deep down and so you know who you are, that deep down you believe I'm actually ugly. Everyone thinks I'm better, but I'm actually ugly. He wants, he own, he takes on our, he becomes sin for us so that, uh, he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. 
and he became marred, he became abandoned by God. Talk about abandonment and becoming an outcast. He became abandoned by God so that you would never have to be abandoned again. You never have to feel those things again. You never have to live out of those lies. The truth is, you belong. The truth is, if you receive Jesus as your Savior, you belong. And you're part of his family forever. You're his son and his daughter. Hear that. You can't risk it. You can't lose it. You can never lose it. I have three sons. No matter what they do, I'm always going to be their father. I'm always going to love them, no matter what they do. Nothing can change that status. Nothing can change that status for you. And you can begin to forget your shame. The scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you feel like God's calling you forward, if you feel like maybe some of you have never felt like you've, you've been adopted into God's family or that he's called you son or daughter, if that's you, he's calling you today. And he's calling you. Hear his voice. He's calling you forward. He's calling you out. That's why you're here today. And today, if you hear his, his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's your choice. Will you harden your heart or make it soft to God? That woman had a choice. She could have withdrew t- t- from the crowd and only walked away with her physical healing or come out and receive everything God had for her. I want you to have everything God had for you. Christ Central wants you to have everything God has for you. But you've got, you've got to not harden your heart and you've got to come forward to him. Here are some questions to discover how God may be calling you to respond. Other ways that God might be calling you to respond to this passage. What shame do I need to bring to Jesus to heal? Who on earth will I talk to about this? And when? Will I trust God with the story of of suffering he's written for me to his glory? You know, she just wanted one thing. And we all just kind of want one thing, relief from our pain. So we come to, come to Jesus and say, please give me relief. And he, he may give that to us, but he says, I want to give you so much more. I'm not done with you yet. You only came for that, but I want you to stay. And I want you to keep going. I'm free for, for about a decade now, by God's grace, of my pornography addiction. But I found out that... That's not all God was after. That wasn't the great be-all, end-all cinema. He has so much more for me to be free of. So much more selfishness to, to set me free of. So much more he's working on. But I tell you, this slavery is freedom. <laughs> Sin says, I'll give you freedom, gives you slavery. Jesus says, I'll, I'll give you slavery, he gives you freedom. <laughs> you know? Slavery to Christ is like the greatest freedom that there is. And I'm so grateful that for the steps, the times I took the steps. I've, uh, you know, I've messed up too, but the times I've, I've done those steps towards him. Will you do that now? Will you trust him with your suffering and say, you know what? This isn't the way I would have written my story, but I trust you, God. You used the 12 years of bleeding for that woman. You've been using it for 2,000 years. God wants to use the suffering he's given you to help thousands of others over many years. I'm convinced of it. He wants to help many, many others over many, many years. But he can't use it as long as you have it stuffed and compartmentalized away. It's useless then. And it's only killing you. Why? Do you really want to live like that? Don't you want to be free? He's showing you the way through this passage. You have a choice to make. How will you respond? 
I say, bring it to Jesus to be healed. Bring it to community to find grace. Maybe it's your small group. Your registrations are starting for small group. Maybe it's your small group. Maybe it's just a few friends. Maybe it's the pastors here. This is a room of grace. Christ Central can be a room of grace for you. Let it be that. Let it be a place of healing for you. Let it be a place where you can be the real you. Drop the masks. No one is asking you to put on a mask here. No one wants you to do that. Drop the masks. Last question. Will I restore others as a kingdom keeper, as a kingdom bringer? Will I restore others as holistically as Jesus does this woman? And how can I do that? Just take one minute. Pick one of these questions and just think about it, okay? I'm just going to be silent for one minute. If you want to write it down, you can write it down. But just take one of these questions and the one that really is popping out to you and trust that that's the Holy Spirit popping that out to you and, and try and answer it. Please join me in prayer. Father, would you help this be solidified in our lives? Would you help this question or these questions to get answered positively? Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy. You're kind. You're not this tyrant that everyone in the world thinks you are. This is the heart of God. This is the truth and grace of the, of the Father. I thank you, Lord, for doing that. And, and Lord, I... If there's anyone in the room tonight, this morning, who like hasn't heard son or daughter and you want to, just ask him right now. Please call me your son. Please call me your daughter. I give you my life. I accept your cross as the, the cross of shame that took away, that was meant to take away not just the world's shame, but my shame. It's for me. You died for me. And I receive you as my Savior and Lord. I commit my future to you. I commit to being a kingdom bringer. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So if you did, uh, for the first time, commit your, your life to Christ, or uh, please tell one of the pastoral staff. Um, I would love to keep in touch with you if you're interested in any way in New York City. Uh, maybe you know someone going to school there or working there. Maybe you travel there. Maybe you just want to pray for New York City and want to know how. Uh, I want to reach New York City. You guys can take L.A., okay? You guys got to take, you got, you got L.A.? Okay. Uh, me and my friends out there, we want to reach New York City, so pray for us. And, and uh, please text me if you'd like to receive our newsletters or, or anything else. Um, and again, I just want to thank you for this tremendous privilege. Isn't God's word wonderful? Isn't Jesus marvelous? We are so blessed. <laughs> thank you for letting me share that blessing with you today. I appreciate it.